You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University. As always, I am your host, Matthew Kroll. I am the Academic Program Manager here in the Department of Philosophy at Purdue. Today we have a bonus episode. Uh, This one takes us back a few years, actually. I've been calling it the basement tape or the basement take. Um, Sort of an early demo of our venturing into doing something like a podcast. Years ago, when I was a PhD student in the philosophy and literature program here at Purdue, I had an idea for a podcast that I wanted to call Talk and Verse. Had this podcast gone off the ground, what I would have typically done was interview someone who wasn't necessarily an expert in poetry um, and just talk to them about poems they liked or poets they liked, you know, how poetry has affected them generally. So in the fall of 2013, uh, we had invited Dr. Andrew Cutrafello of Loyola University, Chicago, down to Purdue to give an Illuminations lecture. The Illuminations Lecture Series was something that the Philosophy and Literature Program hosted at the time. And specifically, that particular year, I co-hosted this lecture series, Illuminations, with a then-colleague of mine, now Dr. Donovan Irvin. Uh, That particular day, Andrew Kutrafello came down to give a talk on uh, metaphysical poetry. But before that talk, he was generous enough to give us his time to do an interview. We talked about Shakespeare, some of Shakespeare's sonnets, poetry in general. Uh, we being me and Dr. Andrew Cutrafello sort of had this conversation uh, in which we were just talking verse. For whatever reason, I never got around to putting it up, mainly because it was a one-off and it just didn't seem to fit in anywhere. However, We, uh, myself and Caroline, have now since figured out how to extract just the audio. So we're throwing this out there. Um, Can't promise that the audio is great. That's nothing against Caroline. I know she's put together a great episode. But, you know, extracting audio from video, um, there's going to be some technological challenges there. Uh, This is a few months before the official publication of his book, All for Nothing, Hamlet's Negativity, which came out in 2014 through the MIT Press. I should say this is a very rough, I mean, we just went in there, no notes, and started talking. I think at one point I mentioned Allen Ginsberg as being the author of On the Road. Uh, The author of On the Road was obviously Jack Kerouac. But you'll notice I made a couple mistakes in their factual errors. Um, mostly because I was just so geeked to do this, <laughs> to do this interview. Um, but anyways, here it is. Uh, hope you guys enjoy it. And thanks again, though now many years later, to Donovan Irvin for having recorded this at the time, and also to Dr. Andrew Cucciofello for having given us his time that day. Last thing I'll say is if you want to see Dr. Andrew Cutrafello's Illuminations talk, which we also video recorded and put on YouTube, uh, again, Donovan Irvin uh, was doing that at the time, and thanks to him for curating a nice uh, playlist of Illuminations lectures. The quickest way to get there, obviously go to YouTube and search Purdue Illuminations lectures. It should come up. 
Also, if you want to go to the Purdue Philosophy website, if you go to the News and Events tab, and then click on the Lecture Series tile, and you'll see another tile for Illuminations. You go there, so you can see Dr. Andrew Kucherfellow's talk um, on the idea of metaphysical poetry. All right, thanks for listening, and hope you guys enjoy this, and hopefully we'll have some new content for you next week. All right, take care. This is Talk and Verse. I'm your host, Matthew Lawrence Kroll. I'm a third-year PhD student in the Philosophy and Literature program at Purdue University. This is the inaugural Talk and Verse, and very excited to announce that today's guest from Loyola University, Chicago, is Dr. Andrew Cuchfellow. Andrew, Matthew, pleasure to meet you. Likewise, and thank you for having me here today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, just a brief note, Dr. Fellow is in town for the Illuminations Lecture Series. The title of today's lecture is on the idea of metaphysical poetry, uh, which, if I understand correctly, does have a little bit to do with Shakespeare, which is the topic for today's talk and verse, correct? That's correct. Shakespeare will be the punchline. Today. <laughs> All right. Shakespeare's today's punchlines. Uh, today's talk and verse is going to focus on sonnets more, to some extent. Uh, particularly Sonnet 71, which we will start with. For those of you out there, if you're watching, you can pull up Sonnet 71 online pretty much anywhere. Have a look at that. Maybe it'll help guide you through what we're going to talk about. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk about Sonnet 71, Andrew, is because it's self-referential insofar as there's lines in this sonnet where Shakespeare really talks about this <coughs> verse, um, this piece of poetry. and. To me, that surprises me a bit because, and I'm no Shakespearean, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but when I think about Shakespeare, particularly the plays, I feel like we don't often see that much, that self-referential quality to poetry itself and the poetry he, he was writing. Um, but as you were explaining to me earlier that this is more frequent in sonnets. Uh, well, definitely in the sonnets, you do have a number of places where uh, the, the poems refer to themselves. And uh, also in Shakespeare's plays, what you do often get is a certain amount of metatheatricality. Mm. Like, for example, in Julius Caesar, after um, Caesar's been killed, uh, Brutus and Caesar, Brutus and Cassius are talking, and uh, they're asking themselves, how many times in the future will men perform this scene? Uh, and likewise, nice. in Antony and Cleopatra, uh, Cleopatra talks about being buoyed one day that is played by a boy actor. Mm. And of course it's a boy actor playing her. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. yeah. So actually Shakespeare was quite into those metatheatrical sort of touches that we think of as, you know, postmodern in some way today. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, because I think about in terms of today, um, sort of what what they'll call poetic manifestos is really big in sort of contemporary poetries, you know, postmodernist poetries. Poems that literally say, this is what poetry is, and this is what poetry does. I feel like in this particular sonnet, there's some of that, that as you said, that sort of metapoetic approach, um, and yet maybe it's just because of the meter or the eloquent language. It seems to be so much less heavy-handed. Does that <laughs> seem like a fair assessment? I think that does, yeah. I mean, I think that so much with this poem depends on the tone in which you read it. Yeah. You can imagine this poem being read five or six times with very different intents. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. coming across very differently, you know? Yeah. Maybe d could you think of like an example in here, just like a line or two? Right. Uh, so, you know, one way to read it would be a sort of very histrionic way. Okay. Um, no longer mourn for me when I am dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. And of course, that's very different from, 
you know, no longer mourn for me when I'm dead, and you shall hear this surly sullen bell give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. You know, two very different readings right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and of course, you, you can take the message in so many ways. You can take it to be a straightforward message, truly, forget me. Or you could take it, you know, almost just as straightforwardly as, um, you know, remember me. It's, it's almost like Hamlet's father's message to Hamlet, remember me. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Do you think that, do you know if this was written before or after Hamlet? It's, it's around the same time. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the, the, the consensus is that Hamlet, um, Troilus and Cressida and the sonnets are more or less around the same time. Um, there's a lot of disagreement, though, about the sonnets, and, and clearly they were written over a, a certain stretch of time. Yeah. Um, but some of them seem to have been written around the time that Hamlet and Troilus and Cressida were written as well. Okay. Because uh, I guess what suddenly occurred to me was um, some people maybe want to conflate maybe too much, but maybe it's fair, Hamlet and Shakespeare. Right. For uh, instance, we were reading Ulysses for a class recently, and it was the whole part about uh, the chapter where Hamlet is Shakespeare, and there's, like, the biography of Shakespeare that, like, inspires Hamlet, I think was uh, Stephen Dedalus' claim. I can't remember, but it's Stephen and Buck Mulligan, right, basically. Right. Talking. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was Stephen's claim. So I just thought, you know, you made that connection or whatever between the Hamlet line and this, and I thought, oh, I wonder if, you know, what was Shakespeare going through at the time, right, where right. this kind of becomes a repetition in his verse, yeah, know, whether yeah, for, the, yeah. for the stage or otherwise. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. Yeah, you know, the, the, the story of the performance history is that Shakespeare was supposed to have played the part of the ghost. I think, mm. I think Nicholas Rowe tells that story. and um, Of Hamlet's father. Of ha yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. And, um, of course, he had the son, Hamnet, who had died as well, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of basis for identification there. Hmm. Um, no, it's interesting. One line I wanted to point out, and I don't know um, how much we can make of this, but it's the sixth line... Just this first part of it, before the sejour there, the, the comma, the hand that writ it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting um, for two reasons. One, the physical process of writing poetry, mm -hmm. of actually sitting down to write it, it's not just a mental anguish. But there's actually a physicality involved with it, particularly at Shakespeare's right, time. Right, right. I mean, uh -huh. I'm figuring he's probably dipping a quill in a pen or in, a, in an inkwell or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's a whole other level to it. But also just the idea of um, poets writing, you know, this is, this is sort of poeticizing it, but poets writing by candlelight with the, you know, the feathered quill and the inkwell. And nowadays you could write a poem on your phone. I mean, you could be on a bus on a phone and think, oh, I want to write that image down, and you could type it into your mm -hmm. Blackberry mm -hmm. or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, that just struck me as interesting. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that, um, and sort of the process of writing poetry yeah, by yeah. hand. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're right. I mean, he, he's definitely not only, you know, sort of reflecting on the poem, but reflecting on the writing of it, and, you know, and the that act of the hand of the writing. I'm trying to remember, there's another sonnet, then. I'm trying to remember what number it is in which he... Um, Uses the phrase "the dyer's hand," which hmm. uh, which Auden then uses the title for a uh, yeah. essays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it has to do with the way in which the dyer's hand takes on the color of the dye. So um, because of like the proximity to where it's it's literally sort of getting dyed, the hand itself as exactly, it dyes right. because of the 
the sort of artisanal, really hands-on. Yes, exactly. Huh. Right. I didn't know that, but I love Auden. Thanks for yeah, mentioning yeah. that. <laughs> well, and of course, uh, this is probably a little bit less messy, taking about writing with his fingers, exactly. But I think yeah, it's yeah. true. That, I mean, there is a physicality to it that he's aware yeah, yeah. of and is reflecting on. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder too. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, because you mentioned this 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 change in the way in which we write, going from you know writing this way to you know just uh, working on your cell phone. Um, I once saw a production of As You Like It in which in the final scene when Touchstone goes through the seven stages of a quarrel and there's this back and forth messaging. Okay. Um, you know, if, if if he said that my beard was, you know, then I said, you know, and it's sort of this back and forth. Interesting. And the actor who did this sort of went through this, sort of the history of various writing media. So just with hand gestures, he would, you know, if he said... You know, first it's that kind of thing, and then it becomes you know the, the rotary dial to the phone. Right, right, right. Fancy, it's texting. It's just very, very cleverly done. I saw. It's funny with the rotary phone. Just sort of as an aside, I think I saw a comedian do a bit once about how with the rotary phone, it's really hard to have a dramatic dial. <laughs> you know, and it was difficult when I was a kid. I remember my neighbor had this huge black phone. It must have weighed forty pounds. Uh -huh. Whenever you saw someone go to write, you know. Or just go to dial angrily. Yes, like, right. I do remember that gesture. You know, it's hard to do, but it's the same with the the uh, the old typewriter. You know, you're kind of clacking away, and ah, this will teach them. Ding. You know, it's a it's a whole different yeah, you know yeah. physicality to oh, yeah, it. That's and, right. And this that's is right. sort of what I wanted to ask was, I mean, do you think that that affects the way by contemporary standards because of like our writing technologies? Do you think it removes the poet from the poetry at all, in a way? I mean, maybe that's a loaded question, but how do you think that that's evolved, the process of the poet actually connecting to the physical piece of work? Because, right, right. you know, you hear a story like Ginsburg wrote On the Road in three days, and he's hopped up on whatever amphetamines, and he writes on one continuous scroll. That's very different from saving... 45 versions of a word document. Yeah, yeah, right? oh, indeed, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, apparently it's a myth, though, because apparently Kerouac really Kerouac. did make a lot of changes. Uh, if you look <laughs> nice. at that scroll, it's really not so... Uh, myth dispelled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but even that legend, you get that sense of that a writer could write on one continuous scroll. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. like I said, it's different from soft copies and saving and yeah. uh, and so how do you think that fits in with something like this where a hand actually wrote this piece? right right well of course I'm sure it differs for different poets and I don't write poetry but um, you know just as a writer of, of bad philosophical prose <laughs> I can say that um, you know, I think word processors really uh, they hurt my writing um, they, they came on the scene just about the time I started to write my dissertation mm -hmm. and the cut and paste option was such a boon, but it also really destroyed any any ability that I might have learned to structure my work ahead of time in some way. Huh. So I mean, and I, I've occasionally felt when I've suffered from writer's block that it's it's, it's word. It's because I'm working in word. Yeah. I, I I have to write in some other medium. And yeah. I imagine that for a lot of writers, you know, do you do that? Do you write through another medium? Do you sometimes jot down notes sometimes or? I'll I'll just take out napkins or you yeah, know, yeah yeah uh -huh. yeah the classic napkin. <laughs> right. I like to um use an easel pad. 
Oh, you know, like the big that uh -huh. you can like flip through. Yeah, yeah. Because I like to have a sort of diagrammatic approach. And you standing in front of it? Out of I, actually, what I do is I usually I'm on one knee on the floor. Oh, I like nice. take a knee, like high school sports style, <laughs> and I just sort of lean in front of me. But I sort of just draw squiggly lines around different pieces because okay. okay. I like to sort of put it together diagrammatically, and so I'll find my flow through the piece. That way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to use the word flow too, because we associate that medium with flow charts in a way too. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> and, and I know that you're an Ashbury fan, so perhaps That's you true. have something to say about flow chart here <laughs> in this context. <laughs> but can I write that down? Oh, yeah. No, that's good. The um. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, sort of broaden the context, I know that um, you have a book coming out, is it next year through MIT Press, yeah, that's that, right. that uh -huh. deals with Shakespeare and Hamlet? Uh -huh. um, maybe if you'd like to share the title with us and talk a little bit about that project. Sure, yeah, the book is called uh, All for Nothing, Hamlet's Negativity, and uh, it's about the ways in which philosophers have uh, taken Hamlet up as a kind of philosophical voice that they've sometimes uh, argued with and sometimes uh, perform themselves in a certain way. And um, so I, I'm interested in different ways in which uh, Hamlet, like the figure of the sophist for Plato, hmm. um, personifies negativity in certain ways. And uh, if the sophist sort of personified certain specific forms of negativity that Plato deals with, I'm suggesting that Hamlet personifies certain modern forms of negativity. So nihilism, for example, is a kind of form of uh, negativity that, that seems to be distinctively modern in a certain way. And I think that uh, it's no accident that when philosophers uh, and writers, including Turgenev, for example, have, uh, have, have dealt with uh, issues about nihilism, they, they've thought of and with Hamlet in a certain way. Why is it that Hamlet seems to have that impact and play that role in Shakespeare? I mean, Shakespeare... <laughs> you know, he's written so much, the, all the sonnets, all the pieces that he's written, all the plays, and, a, you know, covers such a wide range of topics and emotions. Why does Hamlet seem to be, particularly for philosophers and the philosophical community, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what is it about Hamlet? It's a great question, and I've thought about it so much, and I, I can't really say that I have a really good answer for it. But um, it's interesting because, of course, you know, as you say, Shakespeare, I mean, there's Rosalind, there's Lear, there's Macbeth, there's Brutus and Caesar. Um, there's so many characters. But And when I originally started this project, my original plan was to talk about um, Shakespeare's impact on the history of philosophy. But at a certain point, I realized that um, that project was, first of all, a little bit too big, but also Hamlet really was the focal point. And uh, But why Hamlet in particular? You know, the best that I can do is to say that I think because perhaps in some way Hamlet does personify, um, well, he personifies a certain form of subjectivity. Um, I tend to think that there's a kind of negativity that his specific form of subjectivity expresses. Could you just, just expound on that a little bit? Like what, what exactly you mean by that negativity what, and what that negativity is and maybe places in the, in the play where we could really see that. Right. Well, I think uh, one place where you see it is in a sense with um, uh, Hamlet's wearing black. Um, uh, he's in mourning. And um, he's in mourning and he's visited by the ghost and um, both his dead father and his returned father are in a sense not fully real. They're not fully present. Hmm. But they're not fully absent either. But there's a certain way in which Hamlet hmm. is 
His, uh, it, it's this absence that, uh, that troubles him. And of course, the to be or not to be soliloquy is also a question about, um, about whether there is such a thing as annihilation or not. And um, of course, the whole play is about death and about botched funerals. Um, and of course, you know, perhaps the most sort of emblematically philosophical scene is when he picks up the skull of York. <laughs> and uh, alas, alas, poor <laughs> York. Yeah. Uh, and. I think that there's something about um, Ham's confrontation with death mm -hmm. there that I would say is probably the most concrete form of his expression of negativity. So is there a particular version of Hamlet that you prefer? Do, uh, have you seen many of them film, or have you ever been to see Hamlet you know, performed live? Yeah, sure. I've seen a number of Hamlets, and I've listened to a number of audio recordings, and I've seen most of the films probably. Yeah. Well, let's see. A favorite? I, I mean, I... What, what I like about the Branagh is that it's it's uncut. You know, yes. It's a whole text, yeah. and that's so rare. Rare, yes. Yeah, yeah. What I don't like about the Branagh is he gives you a few too many visual aids here and there, as though he doesn't sort of trust Shakespeare mm. to just kind of tell the story on his own. But that's okay. I, uh, and I think it's a, you know they're, they're fine performances in that. I think the one that probably gives me the most pause is the um, the Mel Gibson production. <laughs> You know, because Fair we, enough. We, we, we begin with the funeral of mm. Hamlet's father, and I think that's a little too much backstory that we're getting. It doesn't begin in the right way. Yeah, a bit heavy-handed, maybe. A bit heavy-handed, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, you know, we, we do have the Glenn Close who can't keep her hands off Hamlet, which sort of amalgamating her fatal attraction role into her Gertrude role. That's entertaining. I hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about that. Have you seen the, uh, I, now, I haven't seen the full length of some of the more classic productions, but when I was reading Hamlet a couple summers ago, I really just tried to YouTube the to be or not to be. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, because it's, I mean, it's, I guess, the, you know, the soliloquy or whatever in, in Hamlet, if Indeed. not all of Shakespeare. Right. And there was, I mean, you know, it's so different the way it can be performed. I found myself really drawn to the Richard Burton version. Are you familiar oh, with well, that? Oh, Burton's one? fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I really liked that uh -huh. version. I don't know why. There was something really raw and gritty I uh -huh. felt uh -huh. about it. And I feel like, and I don't know, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. I don't think Hamlet is by any means a violent character, but I think, and you were saying this earlier about the way one could read the sonnet and how it would change the cadence and really the expression of the poem. And I feel like. You know, that's what's great about Shakespeare's characters, especially someone like Hamlet. There's potential to be a really sort of, almost a Western, almost a cowboy kind of, you know, like, aspect. There's a sort of a raw grittiness that uh -huh, could come uh -huh, out. Uh -huh. do, you, uh, do you have any thoughts about, you know, not necessarily the way Hamlet should be played, but just the range and the potential for range in that character? Well, I think you're right. There is enormous potential for range. And, um, you know, I, I sort of wonder if maybe Hamlet, the range of Hamlet, performances haven't been hasn't been explored quite as much as for some other characters partly because mm. because Hamlet looms so large in our minds as being a certain way yeah. that I think that actors um, feel um, constrained by that tradition in a certain way and that's it's interesting because it makes me think like Hamlet is so much a part of everyday culture whatever that means yeah I mean if there's any meme any call for me yeah. to be or not to be. Yeah. Right?
guy. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We should hashtag that. We should we should get that it, out. It probably is hashtag already. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that popular culture. It reminds me, since we're talking about the film versions of the the have you seen the Ethan Hawke uh, production? I have. And, you know, the, remember he does the to be or not to be soliloquy in a video yeah. store, go yeah. up and down the aisles. Um, you know, that's extremely cut text, and of course many liberties are taken, and it's very modernized. But there's a certain kind of excitement to that version. I think it's uh, it, has, it has a few things going for it. I like it because, um, if I recall, it came out in the '90s, and just sort of like the age I was. I think Ethan Hawke's fantastic, but also I felt like. They found a way through the play to really update it to sort of that time, um, and and I know that's a, a big part of the adaptation process. Right. Right. Uh, do you feel that there's any sort of ethical standard, using the term ethical very loosely, to perform the play in a certain way? I mean, I know that you mentioned like the beginning of the Gibson play, maybe a bit heavy-handed, but I actually thought there was some nice subtleties to the to the Ethan Hawke version uh -huh. of, of uh -huh. Hamlet. Yeah, well, I think that uh, you know I might not say ethical because maybe it is a little strong, but it is. But but for me, the the, the standard is don't change Shakespeare's words. No, I can see that. I want to shift gears a little bit here um, to go back to something we were talking about, and you mentioned listening to Shakespeare recently, um, and so I imagine like car, uh, what do they call it, like tapes, you know, books audio tape, tape, books yeah. on tape kind of thing for the car, or do you just listen to it like when you're walking around the house and the and the iPod? I mean, could you talk a little bit about the medium you actually listen to it through, uh -huh. and just sort of that experience, um, because I know you had mentioned to me earlier before the interview that, that you're a big fan of Shakespeare, and for the last seven, eight years of your life you've really engaged with Shakespeare. Um, which happens to many people, you're in good company, <laughs> but you seem to really stress that idea of listening to Shakespeare, maybe even more so than, than reading, um, to I, some extent. Maybe, yeah. maybe removed from the academic studies as just a person in the world who enjoys it, you seem to really enjoy listening to it. I do. I, I listen to it in the car mostly. I, go to the, I have to drive to my gym every day, and so on the way there, on the way back, I listen to Shakespeare, or sometimes other things too, but um, quite a bit of Shakespeare. And from my own personal experience, you know, there are often these debates between Shakespeare scholars, people who think that Shakespeare is primarily about the stage, mm -hmm. but then other people who emphasize the book Shakespeare. And that is making a little bit more of a comeback lately. But I often sort of feel as though my listening relationship to Shakespeare is slightly in between those two, because the, the performances I listen to, they're fully dramatized, but there's no visual aspect whatsoever. And um, mm -hmm. so it, it is a little bit in between a reading and a staged production experience. And do you sometimes listen to different versions of the same? I mean, do you find a great variance between different versions? Oh, and, yes. and you get a, a tonal effect that really comes through the the audio the audio version of it, even from say one version oh, yes. of Hamlet to another or whatever it may be. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I always like to have multiple versions of the plays if possible. Of course, there are a lot of them, the, the, the less popular ones, that uh, you can't easily find uh, more than one recording of. Archangel has a complete set of all of the plays on the bridge. Oh, nice. And, uh, and those are, they're all very, very good. You know, very high production values and unabridged, so I highly recommend them. And you seem to like the unabridged. I do too. I mean, I feel like you're missing something. Even some of the throwaway scenes for many productions, I feel like they're in there for a reason. I don't know, I just trust Shakespeare. 
Um, and I get, and so you mentioned the brand mm-hmm. earlier being the full uh-huh. text. Uh-huh. That I sometimes, you know, when you see a version and you see how it's been changed and adapted, and maybe even sometimes like a scene comes before another one, or they kind of jump back and forth between com- conversations. That really, that really bothers me. Uh-huh. Do you uh-huh. do you get bothered by that same sort of thing? I, I, I do get bothered by cuts. Yeah, yeah. you know, with Hamlet, Hamlet's one of the more problematic texts because there are a lot of differences between the quartos and the folio. Okay. So sometimes, you know, figuring out what exactly really the whole text is isn't so easy. Mm. King Lear is notorious for that. But but in certain but to the greatest extent possible I do prefer to be inclusive. Yeah, to have yeah, to have the entire text. Yeah. Um even yeah. you know, even though as you said maybe that's problematic determining what that is. Right. Um getting close to the end of the interview here, I wanted to and we're sort of um in this milieu of talking about Shakespeare in popular culture. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to broaden the, the conversation again and bring up the idea of poetry in popular culture. Um, with Shakespeare, you have you know the sonnets, but you have the plays in popular culture. Um, recently, there's been a couple films released that are either about the life of a poet or uh, a film recently released on... Um, the young beat generation and their time at Columbia and things like this. I wondered how you, I mean, what are your thoughts on whether it's Shakespeare's plays or the life of a poet or poetry being brought into film or into TV and what effect do you think that has on the way people who maybe don't study poetry or Shakespeare experience poetry? Do you think it can help sort of Reinvigorate the importance uh, I mean, I, of poetry. I certainly think that anything that can that that can help to get people excited about poetry is a good thing. Mm. And um, um, it's funny because you know we, we we do tend to have certain kinds of stock ideas about what poetry is, and um, and poetry doesn't have the certain the same kind of prestige in our culture that it has had in other times of history and in other cultures. There are other places in the world where Poetry is more um, part of everyday culture. Yeah. Um, but one thing that does fascinate me is how incredibly present Shakespeare is in our culture today. Shakespeare is absolutely everywhere, and I think it's very easy for us to sort of get into this idea that well, Shakespeare's always been present, and we're just sort of part of that stream. But I think actually there's something about us today that really connects up with Shakespeare in a certain way. That's interesting. What, what do you, th- well, first of all, like, what are some of the examples of Shakespeare just being so prevalent today? Well, I mean, throughout the culture, of course, you know, from films like Shakespeare in Love to, um, um, you know, all, The Much Ado About Nothing that was released recently, yeah. Coriolanus that Ralph Fiennes did, and there's so many Shakespeare films. Did you see so the on. film Anonymous? It's about Anonymous, right. So is that, that's the kind of thing you're talking yes, about? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But also I think that our aesthetic sensibility is a lot like the Elizabethans or Jacobians. Hmm. Um, for example, people often point out that uh, Titus Andronicus which is, I love. Um, it's a fantastic <laughs> play, but you know, for many, many years, it was really regarded as much too violent. Mm. And, um, but I mean, for us, it's a Quentin Tarantino kind of aesthetic in a certain way. Now, that's a, that's a bit of an overstatement, but what I mean is, the violence of the play yeah. is something that we're used to, and it's part of our culture. We could readily imagine a kind of. Uh, Quentin Tarantino treatment of it, or Julie Tamer's treatment of it, I thought was excellent. 
because I'm just thinking, I'm writing down right now, call Tarantino, whom I don't know, <laughs> R.E. Titus Andronicus. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. but that's interesting, though, that the way the culture sort of changes, and maybe because of more the film and TV medium and the images that they can um, put more easily on film or TV, in the sense that you can splice the film and you can get these sequences together, and we seem so desensitized to violence or, um, or and maybe that has something to do with it where a play like Titus Andronicus, if I understand you correctly has that opportunity to really re-emerge from the canon of Shakespeare right, because right. of our cultural milieu right, yeah or another example uh, King Lear from, uh, for um, uh, I believe over a century I'm not sure how long the time span was um, um, because of a change that had been made to the ending um, Cordelia never died uh, and it was only, I believe, in the late 19th century that people started to go back to the original play and have it end as tragically as uh, Shakespeare's play does. Now, does that refresh my memory? She, she's in her, like, a jail cell or something? She's, she's uh, right. She's hanged off uh, stage. Yeah, 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 okay. And so that and, had actually been... And then been... Lear comes on stage carrying her uh, body. So that had vanished from the performance or from the play, and then so that yes. aspect of it reemerged. Yes, so that's we... right. And Troilus and Cressida is another interesting play um, because there's no record of a performance of Troilus and Cressida until just about the turn of the 20th century. It was probably performed in Shakespeare's day, but um, but there's no definitive proof of that. And uh, then it largely disappeared from the stage. And there's something about Troilus and Cressida. Critics tend to characterize it as very avant-garde in a certain way. You can't easily characterize it as a tragedy or a comedy or a history. And, um, but there's, there's a certain kind of um, contemporary, contemporary feel that it has. It's very, very easy play to stage today hmm. that people can relate to. Nice, nice. Um, the last few questions here, just going to sort of spitball these, get some quick answers mm -hmm. from you if that's all right, before we wrap up. And sure. again, thank you very much, our guest today, Dr. Andrew Kucherfellow. Um, number one, is there, if you could play any Shakespeare character, who would it be? That's a great question, so let me stall for time here. Uh, I'm stalling for time. Um, I was trying to convince a, a young actress I know that, um, that she should let me direct her mm. to perform um, the, one of my favorite scenes. Of course, I can say that about so many of Shakespeare's scenes, sure. but it's a scene in, um, at the end, towards the end of Othello when Desdemona is getting ready for bed, and Amelia is talking okay. to her when she sings, Desdemona sings the Willow song. Uh, it's a very, very powerful, moving scene, and I've thought, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of make that a one-actress scene, where the actress is essentially playing Desdemona, conjuring this imaginary Amelia as a counterpart, so that it wow. played almost as a kind of mad scene. In a certain way, a kind of operatic mad scene. How did that actress take it? Well, she kept saying, "Okay, Andrew, we'll do that. We'll do that one day." <laughs> well, so, so we'll see. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's an ellipsis day. on that. That's that right. Come to fruition. Yeah. So she kept telling me that I should direct a Shakespeare play, and I have no experience there whatsoever. I don't think I would do a good job. But is that is Othello the one? Because for me, I would love to direct a Hamlet. Um, and I would love to play uh, Tom of Bedlam um, in uh -huh, King uh -huh. Lear. Oh, I don't wow. know why. I, I think it's a rich character. What a demanding role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think I have what it takes for it, but you oh, know, in an ideal might, world. In an ideal world. Um, next question. Sorry, just, oh, 
You well, I, I stalled, and now that, let me see if I can come up with an answer. Yeah. Maybe Timon, Timon of Athens, I think. Um, nice. That also seems like an uh, overlooked play. Although one that's been getting a lot of attention lately, and partly because okay. um, people like to make connections with, um, with uh, high finance uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. And um, there was, uh, so I've seen a couple of recent productions that, that, that represent time and is very much part of a, a, a modern uh, industrial capitalist milieu. Sure. Last couple just quick questions. What was the last poem you read? Well, the last poem I read was one of Shakespeare's sonnets because we, we said we would be talking about these. <laughs> okay. Today. Aside from preparation for this, what, what was the, have you read poetry recently? I have, but I'm trying to think of what, what have I read most recently. Um, hmm. I think it was probably Anthony Hecht. I recently read the first volume of his collected poems. Nice. And um, he's an interesting, powerful poet. Nice. Uh, next question. What are you, some of your favorite lines of poetry from Shakespeare? Putting you on the spot here, are there three or four lines you can recite that you hold dear to your heart, Shakespeare or otherwise? You know, it's interesting that you put it that way because I think that there, there are some that I, I can recite and there are some that I hold very, very dear to my heart, but I don't always know them by, by, by heart. I'm the same. I can't memorize a line of poetry. That's embarrassing. I can't memorize a line of poetry to save my life. But when I read them or if I think of them, they spark a, a very visceral reaction. Right, right. So is it just off the top of your head, can you think of any lines? Well, off the top of my head, I can say, going back to Othello, in the final act, when um, Amelia finally discovers that she has been complicitous in Desdemona's murder, she realizes that you know it's all because of the handkerchief and she gave it to Iago. And she decides she's going to speak, and she says uh, something like, uh, you know, let, let, I don't remember the line exactly, but it's something like, let gods and devils, let them all, all, all cry something to me, yet I will speak. Mm. And there's something about that, yet I <laughs> will speak, that brings tears to my eyes every single time. Nice, nice. Dr. Andrew Kucherfello, thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all of you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for watching. Look for future Talk in Verse online. Also, Andrew Kucherfello's Illuminations lecture from Thursday, November 21st, 2013 will be online eventually as well. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.